Lord God, you are with us. We come here this morning to worship you, to learn of you, to be reminded of you, to be taught in you, and just to be with you together. Mm, Good stuff, God. Thank you. And the Son of our blessed Savior. Amen. Grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis. Gotcha. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we join Adam and Eve, as well as Satan and God. Adam and Eve have already been tempted by Satan, and they've sinned. And uh, they knowingly disobeyed God, and they brought the curse of uh, sin upon mankind. And as a result, God has a little talking to here to three individuals, Satan, the woman, and Adam. And I want to start our time this morning by actually looking at uh, the very first pronouncement of a coming Savior. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, tempted Adam and Eve, Cursed are you upon above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. In your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, the offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, By the way, did, did you notice a plan? There is a plan. There is a redemptive plan that's taken place, been put in place from the very beginning. And verse 15 tells us that God had a plan that included an offspring from the woman. By the way, what an encouragement to Eve right at that moment. Because she was next. They're talking to. And yet God says, through the offspring of the woman, i.e., she's going to continue to live, (laughs) And she's going to continue to be able to have children, but not only have offspring, but have offspring that have the impact of, yes, being bruised by Satan, being, being, being dealt a blow by Satan, but yet he will be the one that will destroy Satan. This was the first announcement of the coming of Emmanuel. God with us. Friends, in Genesis chapter 3, He is coming. He's coming. We move ahead thousands of years, and it's the year 2100 BC. God has made a covenant with Abraham, and there is no Emmanuel. But he is coming. In fact, 
Just say it with me. But, and okay, I'll say but. You say, he, but. Yeah. All right, let's take a step back. But then you go after that, he is coming. Okay, but. It's 1500 B.C., the time of Moses. There is a nation that has risen up from Abraham, and they are now in the pursuit of the promised land. But there is still no Emmanuel, but it's around the year 700 B.C., the time of Isaiah. In fact, turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah is right about smack dab in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah chapter 53. It's the year around 700 B.C. And we pick up chapter 53 verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty we should look, that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He, by the way, the offspring, was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he is, uh, he was born uh, our grief. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. That sounds familiar to Genesis chapter 3. He was crushed for our iniquities, but upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have named every one of, uh, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's 700 B.C. There is no Emmanuel. There is a promise of an Emmanuel still to come, but he is coming, friends. Uh, The year is 600 B.C. The, The nation of Israel has been taken captive and divided. It's the time of Daniel. And still, still no Emmanuel. But... It's 480 B.C. and Esther sits on the throne as queen. But there is no sign of the promised Emmanuel king. But? Uh, But? But? Are you sure? Good. It's around the year 430 B.C. Ezra has come to Jerusalem. Nehemiah has returned to Jerusalem. And the last words of the Old Testament are recorded. Turn there with me, please, to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you. Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts, get this, dads, and he, the forerunner of Emmanuel, will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Of all the things that could be said. 
That is a bizarre statement. And keep it tagged away. Because we're going to come to it, the same statement, about 430 years later in Luke chapter 1. And he will turn the hearts, the forerunner will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. A forerunner is promised of the Messiah. And one that would bruise the head of Satan. Emmanuel has still not come, but... Listen, we so often live in a little dot. We live in the little time period called my life. And look at this. God has a redemptive big picture plan, friends. This is about God's story. And we get to be a part of it. We can be a part of God's redemptive story of Emmanuel with us. Listen, over the thousands and thousands of years, there has been this anticipation of the Messiah, of the forerunner, of of the one to come before in Malachi, yet the offspring of Eve. And still, he hasn't come. But Luke chapter 1, let's go there. Luke chapter 1. It is now the year 5 B.C. or thereabouts. And look at, look at Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah. It's 5 B.C. And there's still no Messiah. It's the days of King Herod. It was dark days. King Herod was a ruthless ruler. He had nine wives. That tells you a little bit about him. Oh, by the way, P.S., uh, he had one executed, really for no reason. Uh, kind of the guy you want to marry, huh, ladies? Not the greatest guy, and they were dark days for Israel. And there was still no sign of the Messiah. Yet as people would walk, and they would see the temple in Jerusalem, Many in 5 B.C. were wondering, had Yahweh, had God left the house? It's been thousands and thousands and thousands of years. No sign. Just like God said. Maybe not in my time. But in his time. Just the way he planned it. And that's where we're going. That's where we're going. Are you you excited? Let's go. Let's go. Luke chapter 1 verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah. Now, one thing I just have to make mention here is that there was 400 years of silence between Malachi and where we're at right now. God and his redemptive plan became quiet from around 400, 430 B.C. to the time we're in now. 
No prophetic discussions for Israel. Has God left the house? Well, they're still there serving. So we see this couple. There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God. Well, let's talk about this couple here for a couple minutes. This couple, Zechariah, we learn a couple things about them, about this couple. I've used that word about five times. This couple is comprised of this. Zechariah is what? What's his position? He's a priest. And he's a, a priest of the division of Abijah. Now, everybody knows about Abijah, right? Okay, not. In the Old Testament, First Chronicles 24, if you were to go there, there was an order of 24 families coming from the line of Aaron that was set up. Aaron was Moses' right-hand guy, okay? And after the, all the stuff happened and they come out of Egypt and all this takes place, God sets up Aaron as the first priest. And from Aaron, there comes a lineage that comes out of them where there's 24 divisions. And it lists those divisions. One of those divisions was Abijah. And in Ezra 2, verse 4, or Ezra 2, only four of those 24 divisions returned from exile. But then Nehemiah reinstitutes those 24 divisions. And if you were to go into uh, Nehemiah 12, you'd see that Abijah is the eighth division listed in Nehemiah. So what is Abijah? Abijah is the, is the lineage of Aaron. They are the lineage of priests. And Zechariah was one of those. Uh, each of the 24 divisions served at the temple one week every six months, two weeks a year, two weeks a year. It was estimated in the first century, so a little bit after this, that there were about 18,000 priests and Levites, a lot. They would serve how many weeks in a year? Two weeks. And about how many of these guys are there? About 18,000. Well, Elizabeth, we learn a little bit about her because it says that she's a daughter of Aaron, a daughter of Aaron. She was in the priestly lineage. Now, here's Elizabeth married to Zechariah. Now, Zechariah from the lineage of Abraham in the division of Abijah. And it was very, uh, it was required that a priest out of the lineage of uh, Aaron to marry a virgin of Israel. Okay, that was the requirement. It was ideal if a priest could marry a, a, a virgin of Israel. That was of the priestly lineage. Elizabeth was that. So here is a couple that has everything going for them. Oh, by the way, next week, as we get in really the latter half of chapter 1, uh, we'll find out Elizabeth is an elderly relative of Mary. It's so cool. Come back. It's so cool. Well, that's a little bit about the couple. What was the couple like? Verse 6, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. This was a couple that had it going. They had the right lineage, the right person, and they were godly people. They were righteous. I love the way it says. They were righteous not before other people. They were righteous before God. There's the right judgment point, by the way, the assessment point. They were righteous before God, and they walked blamelessly. Well, that tells you a little bit about the character of this couple. 
Well, let's find out a little bit about a problem, because everything wasn't rosy for this, what seemed to be like, perfect couple. Verse 7, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, some of you are going to really be able to relate to their situation more than others. If you've not been able to have a child, you understand in a way, frankly, that I don't, of what it means not to be able to have a child and want a child. But this was a couple that loved God, that was of the lineage of the priestly lineage, and they had no child. Now, back in those days, it was not only a personal struggle, but it was a social struggle reality. And the reason for that was because everything was oriented around the family and children, if you will, as far as the thinking process. Why is that the case? Because, get this, many in Israel in that day did not believe in eternal life after death. And in fact, many of them believed that eternity was ended up living, being lived out through your children. If you don't have children... There's no, quote, eternity. Now, one, it's bad theology, but that's what was going on in the day. Plus, you have this. Go to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 28. Now, the Old Testament was written, and they knew of the Old Testament. And look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 1. And if you faithfully obey, uh, Moses through God, or Moses speaking for God, is speaking to the people of Israel. And he's saying, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord will. Okay? Got it? So if you obey God and follow his commandments, some things are going to happen. Go over to verse 15. Because here's the opposite side of the coin. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So there's if you do, if you obey me, this is what's going to happen. If you don't obey me, this is what's going to happen. And by the way, look, let's go back to verse 2 in chapter 28. Uh, At the end of verse 1, God will set you high above the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field. Verse 4, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb. Now go over to verse uh, 15 at the end, and then 16, and you will, uh, let's see, 15, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Verse 16, curse shall you be in the city, curse shall you be in the field, curse shall you be, uh, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Verse 18, curse shall be the fruit of your womb. Now listen, here is a godly couple of Israel, a priestly lineage couple of Israel, and which one would you say should take place? Part 1 or part 15, or the second part? Let's take a vote. Who do, which category do they fall in, Deuteronomy verse 1 or Deuteronomy verse 15? Who has, says 1? Okay, who says 15? If you do, you're out. Okay? It's 1. This was a godly couple. And I just wonder, 
I just wonder if this dear elderly couple, having yearned to have children for years, for decades, just wanting to have children and going, God, what's the deal? We're walking with you and you... Have you ever felt that way? Just in life? God, like, what are you doing? I don't get this. And listen, this is the couple. This is the couple at that point in time. They don't know about what's about to take place. They just know this. They're a priestly couple who is serving God, walking with him faithfully and blamelessly. And bless their hearts from it because they could have been a couple that got bitter to God because he wasn't fulfilling his promise to them. But listen to me, that's dot thinking. That's self-thinking. If I put a quarter in, in God's divine gumball machine, he's going to give me out, give me a divine gumball blessing back, just the color and flavor I want. And they were putting quarters in, or drachmas in, or whatever they were putting in there. They're just throwing them in there, and nothing's coming out. And God's all along. He knows exactly what's going on. And it's all in his hands, in his time, just the way he wants, because he is coming. And God uses the hurts of this couple for the glory of God. Let's keep on going. We've got to keep on going. Verse 8. Now, while he was serving Zechariah as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot to enter, not Lot the person, but Lot the dice, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Verse 10. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Listen, only the priests who had never gone in and offered the incense were the ones who were in the lot game at the moment. Here's what would take place. In the morning, they would have, early in the morning, they would have an incense offering in the temple. Then in the evening, after the sacrifices, they would have another incense offering. So each division was serving for one week, one week every six months. So it was Zechariah's division was on duty at this point in time. A priest would enter the temple and conduct the incense offering. In fact, let's bring a temple, a little tighter temple view up here. Uh, this T-looking building here is actually the temple area that you see over here. How the temple area was structured is in the very back here. There Actually, there's a sliver in the back that was a storage room of all the very, very wealthy, or I should say, all the very rare uh, uh, jewels and things of the temple and of Israel were in the very back. Then there was a 30-foot by 30-foot football field, football lovers, 10 yards by 10 yards. Okay, there was a 30 by 30 foot holy of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where the priest would go in one time a year in the back. Then uh, so there's a storage, small storage room. There was the holy of holies. Then from there on out, what was called the holy place. 
And it was in this holy place area where the incense offering would be done. It was right out here in front of this area is where the actual major sacrifices would be done. This is the court of priests out here. Then out here, this is the court, what they actually called the court of women, where the Israelite women and others would come there. But then the priests would come in and, and the sacrifices would take place there. That's kind of the layout of the temple of, of the time. And so what would happen is Abijah's division is up to serve. And so they go and they would cast lots. That was the normal thing that was done in the day. It was a way to, to eliminate the, uh, uh, the, the, the picking my best buddy kind of situation. By the way, there's a whole lot of trust in those dice. God, have at it. Uh, don't take it to Las Vegas. Okay, we're not going there. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? But that's what would happen. So they would go in the, in the morning and then in the evening, uh, one of the priests who would, whose lot came up would come inside. Then in the evening, they would come out and they would stand on the steps and they would proclaim the, the benediction of number six, 24 to 26. It's this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then the evening would come in well today was Zachariah's day this was a once in a lifetime opportunity because once you did it once you were out of the lot till everybody in your division came up but usually that ended up in the cycle to where it was one time maybe two times in a lifetime and here this is Zachariah's time so they cast lots where was God in the process I put it this way he was in the dice God had it all just the way he wanted. And I left the line here because, listen, God's bringing everything here just as he's planned. God has it all in control, even the couple, even the dice, even the time, even the moment. It's all in his hand because this is God's story, folks, not ours. And so Zechariah's time comes up. And it says the activity that was going on outside, there was prayer that was taking place outside. The people were out there and prayer in the court of the priests and prayer in the court of the women. And then Zechariah, his lot has been brought up and he walks and he enters into the temple. And he comes and he opens the door and he would have been by himself. There would usually be five priests who would come in and have things set up. But the big doors of the temple would open and he walked in by himself into this 30 foot wide, 60 foot tall, 60 foot long room with the, with the, the, the veil, the curtain, the, the thick curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Zachariah's day. And he enters, thinking it's going to be like every other day. But it's not. It's not. This is going to be a cool day. This is going to be a blow your shorts off day. So let's take a look. Verse 11. And there appeared to him wasn't expecting this an angel of the lord standing on the right side of the altar by the way this angel we'll see in verse 9 is gabriel the angel of the lord standing on the right side it's the place of honor the right side of the altar of incense there's two people in the room now verse 12 and zachariah was troubled 
I would be too. When he saw him and fear fell upon him. It was just supposed to be him. He didn't hear the door, the door creak open. Just someone, poof. And they're there. I mean, did he open the doors and that they were already there? Did he open the doors and begin walking and poof? I don't know. But whatever happened, he was freaking. And he's walking in and look at this, verse 13. But the angel said to him, I love this. Do not be afraid. By the way, I don't know how your Bible is set up, but on mine, on the right side, over in verse 30, right across in my Bible, and I don't know in yours, verse 30 in chapter 1, obviously it's not right across because I hear pages flipping. Verse 30, it says this, And the angel, the same angel Gabriel, we're going to cover next week, said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. (laughs) What a great God. He knows Zechariah is scared to death. It's like, don't be afraid. So it's okay. It's okay. Do not be afraid, Zachariah. Get this. For your prayer has been heard. And I don't think this is talking about a one-time prayer. It's singular. But I'm going to make a guess. This is just Doug. I'm guessing here. But this prayer of, God, would you give us a child? That prayer. That prayer has been heard. Have you ever prayed and just like, hello? (laughs) Like, how many times do I got to go through this thing? You know, the sovereignty of God, and why do I have to keep coming? Like, if I give it once, don't you write it down and know? Why do I have to keep coming back? Because isn't that kind of works-oriented prayer? I'll tell you, that's a different different time. (laughs) I shouldn't have gone there. It wasn't in my notes. But look at this. And your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bury you a son. Get out of here. He'll bury you a son, and you shall call his name John. And look at this. And you will have joy and gladness. And many will rejoice at his birth. Hey, listen. you guys are about to have your first. I mean, it's the kind of thing. Wouldn't like you want to have an angel come and say, listen, your baby, by the way, I'm going to tell you the name. It's Doug. And your baby is going to be like really cool. I mean, like beyond cool. Because ours are really cool, but yours is like really, really cool. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> Just to be able to know that in advance. And here's what's going on. What reassurance is taking place here? And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice this birth. Now, now, how will they rejoice? What will he do? Verse 15, for he will be great before the Lord. Now, that's the one I want. If you have children or someday hope to have children, don't you want that one? Forget the sports. Forget the music. Forget the other kind of talents. But I want that one. <laughs> I really want that one. Well, he got that one. And told in advance, for he will be great before the Lord, but he will, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, the Nazarite vow. We don't have time to go into that. Similar to what Samson had and so forth. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. I just got to take a moment and mention this. Remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking in Ephesians? 
where he uses that same term about filled with the Holy Spirit and how some people think that when I come to Christ, God gives me 10% of the Holy Spirit and then if I pray real hard and and earn his favor, he'll give me 10% more so I can do 10% more righteousness for God and then later on, he'll give me more and then I'll get more. No, that's not what this is. It doesn't make any sense right here. Instead, even from before his birth, he will be filled with the Spirit. He will have 100% of the Spirit of God residing in it. By the way, which was completely out of the norm of the Old Testament. You didn't have that kind of filling taking place on a permanent reality in the Old Testament. This is going to be one special kid. And even from his mother womb, verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Yeah, I want that kid. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. I got to tell you, I got to pause for a moment on that. Dads, men, that has got to be a statement. For me personally, coming across that this week, that I, I, I don't ever remember it just like grabbing me. And I sit here and I go, that is a bizarre statement. Out of all the things that could be said, it's saying here that one of the things that John the baptizer is going to end up doing is turning the hearts of the fathers to their children, which means that the hearts of the, all the fathers weren't necessarily with their children. Oh, I'm sure they loved their children. I'm sure they would make the statement, I would do anything, I would die for their children. But in that day, men, husbands, dads were known to be extremely strict and harsh. And in that day and in that time, they were using the God-given authority that God had given to them and were abusing it. And their hearts were not with their children the way God has designed it. And later on, after the turn of the year, as we do get in a Bringing It Home series, and later on we're going to be doing on parenting, we're going to be talking about some of this. But listen, guys, this has just got to grab your attention. Because of all the things that could be named, he's going to turn the people to the Lord and the dads to their kids. (laughs) It's a huge deal before God. Turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Don't you love the whole thing of, you know what, this just doesn't make sense. You know, if I were to match this up to science, science would say can't happen. Just can't happen. Okay, so here's the deal. This is so neat. Look at this. So Gabriel has to encourage him along a little bit. Listen how he encourages him. Verse 19, and the angel of the Lord said, I am Gabriel. (laughs) I I think what happened here was in the whole flow of it, you know, he just got pulled out of the blue with the situation that took place and just reacted like any of us probably would. But remember, this was a guy who walked righteously before God and blamelessly before God. And yet when God came and said, I'm going to do something big through you, he was just like we might be. How? Me? That can't happen. 
That can't be the case. And it's like, excuse me, pause the thinking for a moment, put pause, and by the way, I'm God, you're not. And here Gabriel is like, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Zach, you forgot who you're talking to. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? Because you did not believe my words. Because he did not believe his words. Which will be fulfilled in their time. They will happen. The verse 21, and the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. The normal benediction that was done, the numbers thing. Couldn't do it. He was in there long enough, something, they knew something was going on, and he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. I mean, how? And he kept making signs to them and remaining mute. Can't you just picture this? The guy's in there, and all this just, woo I mean, he had to come out like white as a ghost, just coming out like, well, he couldn't say anything. But he's coming out, and he's on the thing. He's like, I, 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 I mean, seriously, what do you do? How frustrating is that? You just want to come out. There's an angel. I just saw Gabriel. Hey, Gabriel, but you can't do that. And he's out there, and he's like, oh, crud, why didn't I just believe him? <laughs> I could be telling everybody. And he comes out, and they're, oh, 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 just what a scene. Just what a scene. And the people knew something happened. And yet he couldn't. I mean, did he go to the sand and kind of start? I have no idea. But that was the scene that took place. And he kept making signs in verse 23. And when his time of service was ended, in other words, he didn't leave right from there and go home to Elizabeth. Uh, By the way, most of the priests didn't live right there necessarily. And, And when they would serve, they would serve there and then go back to their home. And so he was there. I don't know. Was it one more day? Was it till the end of that day? Was it five more days? I don't know. But he couldn't tell anyone and he couldn't tell his wife. And then finally he leaves and he goes home and he tells his wife. And how does Elizabeth respond? Verse 24. After these days, his wife conceived, by the way, a natural conception and not a miraculous virgin birth. And Elizabeth conceived. And I don't quite understand this next statement, frankly. And for five months, she kept herself hidden. Was it because she just wanted to wait time to make sure that the baby was going to be carried through five months? Was it because if she went and told the neighborhood lady that she was pregnant? And she's like, I don't know how old. Let's just say... She's 70 years old, and they're like, yeah, right. Not only does she not have children, which going back to Deuteronomy 28, obviously something is going wrong with that couple that God would not bless them with children. And all the gossip that goes on, ladies, you kind of understand that world. Maybe she was just waiting for a period of time that she could kind of go out and go, I, I, 
I don't mean to be weird. I'm not trying to be bizarre, but I'm dead serious about that. I mean, here she is. She's going to be pregnant with all these circumstances going on, and she wants to tell people, and they're like, yeah, right. And she just Maybe she just didn't want to put up with it until literally it's showing to the point. I'm sorry, I don't quite know what that is about. That one's never going to go down. It will be left. <laughs> and, Nick, I know you're going to keep it going. <laughs> Uh, but it, for some reason, for five months, she kept herself hidden and saying this, verse 25, thus the Lord has done for me. Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Hey, there was some hurt in there, wasn't there? And yet, she got the blessing of God. And all through this, Zechariah can't talk. Some wives are going, yeah. (laughs) But can you imagine, literally though, how often for those nine months of time, Zechariah thinking back, if only I would have believed the words of God. I could have been sharing in this experience with my wife in a very special way. But God is gracious. And God is going to allow us to have a child that is the forerunner of the Genesis chapter 3 statement. Listen. Let me make just a couple closing notes that focus in on our lives. Folks, God hears prayers. Folks, we don't get the big picture all the time. We struggle to see life through the dot, to see life through my circumstances. We struggle with the idea of the, if I put my quarter in for God, he's going to shoot me out a gumball of divine blessing. You see it on religious TV all the time. You know, if you trust God, if you believe in God, you'll have no problems, no financial struggles, no relational difficulties. Everything will be rosy. Like, excuse me, says where in the Bible? Says where? God is sovereign and God is going to carry out his divine purposes in his time because he's got the big picture and we're a part of it. God is sovereignly in control. But listen, we could go on with some other personal applications. But in this series, here's the big thing I want for you and I to walk away with. You want for you and I to walk away with this reality. God has a redemptive plan. And we have the blessing of being able to be a part of it. And he's going to do just as he deems necessary by his plan. And listen, let's get out of, and I'm talking to myself here, let's get out of our selfishness. And God, if it's poverty you've called me to, I don't really want it, but if that's what you want in the redemptive plan of you overall for me, bring it on. If God, if it means that I'm in a relationship struggle till I die, God, it's for you. I'm part of your story. You are not about my story. And this is about God's story. That's what Christmas is about. It is about God's story. Life is not about my story or my glory. 
Life is about God's redemptive story and God's glory. And he's going to use us all uniquely because we get to be a part of it. Let's pray. Lord God, it's the story that we're covering in these first couple chapters that uh, just remind me so much of how far I have to grow. Just amaze me at you. The fact that you would use us. The the fact that you're going to carry your plan through. And, and God, it's about you. It's not about me. And yet, Lord, we all struggle with that. I just think of people in here right now who are going through life struggles. It may be just recent. It may be for some years. It may be for some decades. And God, they may be sitting back and going, where are you? What are you doing? Lord, I would pray that the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, just as we covered here today, would remind us that even when you're silent, even when things aren't necessarily falling together just the way we think they should, you are at work. Lord, I'm just reminded, frankly, how selfish I am before you. I just want things to happen my way, in my time, with my objectives, for my purposes, in my ways. Lord, I, we need to stop it. This is your story. You are not about my story. We are about your story. And may this Christmas we reflect on the reality of the joy, the glory of being a part of your redemptive story. Thanks. Thanks that even in thousands of thousands and thousands of years that moved over time, they were all in your hand. Because of that, we know that the however many years we have living here are likewise in your hands. Thanks for having such strong hands, such purposed hands, such perfect hands. May this week, God, we live in your hands and not ours. The Redeemer is coming. He is coming. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.